You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Well, good morning. It's my privilege for, um, to conclude our series on heroes. We've been looking for the past couple of months at different men and women whose stories are recorded in the Bible that we want to just hold up and say there's some principles we can learn. I hope that you've caught the theme as we've done that. It's not about them. It's about how their story points at the story, the ultimate hero. Not them, but Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is about him. All of eternity is about him. And as we look at their stories, they point firmly to take a look at him. So that's what we're going to do this morning by looking at our final hero in the series. We're going to the book of Judges. Now, just to set the scene a little bit, um, a couple of weeks ago, Rich preached on Miriam. And Miriam was used by God to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They then spent um, quite a few years wandering in the desert before they ultimately got to pass into the promised land. This was a land that God had promised to them from the time of Abraham. You can imagine a mixture of excitement. We're finally claiming our inheritance, but also nervousness that there's a people already living there and we've got to go to war. This was quite a brutal time. It would be a a military campaign that Joshua then led into that land. And God clearly gave them a command. It was a simple command. Go in and take the land, but take all of the land. Don't just settle for a little bit. Go in and claim the whole thing because I'm giving it to you. And the people didn't listen to God. So they went in. They had a few battles. They got comfortable. They found some land that they liked. And they began to settle. And the result of that was there was now the people of Israel living in their promised land. But they were surrounded by these other people, the Canaanites. They were surrounded by other beliefs, other cultures other ways of looking at the world. And over time, they began to intermingle back in and they became almost one people living in this land. The distinctiveness between God's people and not God's people was lost. Enter the time of the judges. At this point in the story, there's a military uh, force that is being um, the Canaanites. They've got um, force in the land and the Israelites are not going through a, a good time. Really, they're under threat. They are feeling quite on edge. And every now and again, they cry out to God and say, God, save us, just like they did in Egypt. And God, being a merciful God, a graceful God, appoints one or two men or women every now and again, raises them up, saves Israel from their enemies, and then the people go back to their old ways again, forget about God, and the cycle repeats itself. And the time of judges is this cycle. It goes on and on and on. The people cry out to God. He raises someone up. He saves them. But then they fall back into sin. And it isn't until the time of the kings is there a formal leadership over the nation. And in fact, the whole book of judges could be summed up by this. Everyone In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's from Judges 21-25. I wonder, can you see the parable, the parallel? A people living, surrounded by other cultures, intermingled, other ways of looking at the world, other beliefs, a viewpoint that, you know what, what's right for you might not be right for me. I just do what's right in my eyes, and you do what's right in your eyes, and we'll all just work out how to get along. It's not lost on us, I think, the parallel between a people of 3,000 years ago and a city that we live in today, where 
it's the same deal. We're surrounded by people who have different beliefs, different cultures, different ways of looking at the world. And the common viewpoint is you do what you think is right, I'll do what I think is right, and we'll work out how to get along. So I think there's some great uh, principles that we can pull out of this story. Um, certainly, Deborah, who is the hero that we're looking at today, is a phenomenal leader. And if we, if we can even take like a hundredth of the qualities that she showed in that time and apply them to our lives, this, this borough, this city will be a radically different place because we will be able to do incredible things because of him. So let's look, let's begin to look at the story. Um, Judges 4, 1 to 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ephod died. And the people sold them into the hand of Jabir, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. And people living in Harosheraf, Garagim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Jabin, the king of Canaan, is the military power of the day. He's got these 900 steel chariots. It would be the equivalent of a Challenger 2 tank coming at you, and all you've got is like a pea shooter or something. Because a steel chariot running at 100 men would just go straight through. Clearly here, the return to a slave-like existence was what the people of Israel were living with. And they began to cry out. After 20 years of living under this oppressive ruler, they cried out, God, save us. What I love here is there's, there's two kind of levels going on in this story. As we'll see, there's the leadership of Deborah, which is phenomenal. But actually, there's a whole other level going on. And that's God moving pieces around the board, responding to the cry of hearts of people who are praying to him. And I guess my challenge to us this morning is, who could there be out there right now crying out to God that then God chooses you to help them in their situation? Yes, we can look at Deborah and we can pull out loads of principles about what she did right, but ultimately it was God who heard the cry of his people. And I know there's people in Ealing and London who are crying out for help and you get to be part of that story. Isn't that incredible? And so as we look at Deborah, be inspired by what she did. And we can all be encouraged to do something similar. So I'm going to look at three stages in Deborah's life. First, we're going to look at Deborah the cultivator. Now, I know that's a strange word. I'm just going to unpack that for a minute. Deborah shows us um, how to live and how to live well. Just... Um, before we get into this, just a couple of comments. I'm aware that as um, Christians, we haven't got the best track record of honoring women, particularly in leadership. Over the years, we've got a bad name about it. And there's been some people who have um, done great things to put that right. And I just want to say up front that Deborah because you can't really escape this. It's the elephant in the room. Deborah is a phenomenal leader. And we need more women to lead in our time. Be that business, be that the church, be that with um, the arts, be that everywhere. We need women to lead. And I'm speaking to the guys in the room. We need to honor women with the way that we speak. We really do. 
We need to uphold examples like Deborah, but contemporary examples today, and say it is good that women are leading in our culture and our society, not trying being the man and trying to put them down to make ourselves feel better. So I'm saying that up front. Deborah, four, four to five. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Deborah was someone who knew what it was to serve her community. She um, is playing this role where it's like a legal role where people would come up and um, put their case before Deborah and Deborah would bring peace. She would bring judgment. She would make sure that that uh, whatever it was, was resolved there and then. She'd be like a, like a judge, but the full legal system wasn't in place at that time. She was someone that's using her natural gift. Obviously, she's got wisdom. She's got discernment. She's well-regarded amongst the community. She's so well-regarded, I find this phenomenal, that there's a palm tree named after her. Isn't that something to live up to? To be so well-regarded within your workplace, within your community, that someone names a palm tree after you. Now, where we don't have palm trees, maybe, uh, I know, the, the, the water cooler of Sam. If Sam, within his work, is regarded for wisdom, he'd go to the water cooler to have a conversation with Sam. It'd forever be known as the water cooler of Sam. To be so well regarded within that place that they name a palm after Deborah. It's incredible. Now, Deborah's role here as a, a peacekeeper, as someone who um, is really, this is Sister Dora, that's a, it's a later story, we'll come back to that, nothing to do. If you go back to um, Deborah the cultivator, um, so Deborah, um, it's something that she'd be very familiar with, because at this time in Deborah's life, um, the teachings of Moses had only just re- relatively recently been written down, a few hundred years. It would be the equivalent of the the latest blockbuster DVD, she'd be studying the Word and the Scriptures because it's the first time the Bible had been written down. So she'd be very familiar with the scene in the garden where God gives commands to Adam and Eve. In um, Genesis 2.15, the Lord took man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. It was the first command that God gave us uh, as a people and Deborah would know that. She knew that part of her role of being like um, the father was to cultivate and to care for the garden. Now, she's not in a physical garden. She's within her community. But she's still taking that initiative to, to work, to bring peace, to bring goodness to that community. Her role as a, a peace bringer, a judge in that community, she took very seriously and obviously did it very well because she was highly regarded. I would say as Christians, we should be known for keeping the good, good. Just like Deborah was keeping the peace, keeping the goodness of that community, we should also take a role in that. And it's something that I think we've, we've done well on as the church over the years. We have started schools. We've um, started food banks. We've been involved in um, social reform historically within this country. There's lots of things we can point to and show how Christians have been involved in society. Um, Matthew 5.13 says, we are the salt of the earth. I love 
this particular verse. Um, you can click to the next slide, I think. Um, this picture of salt being rubbed into the, uh, the world um, is one of um, not just making food taste great, but it also preserves society. So as its salt gets rubbed into a piece of meat, it preserves it so you can keep it longer. As salt goes out onto a, an icy road, it, it protects it and keeps it good for walking on. Salt is one of those incredible um, minerals, ingredients, which um, just has so much life-giving properties, goodness about it. And if that's the picture of what we're meant to be in the world, this saltiness, then I would say that Deborah's living this out really well. She didn't have Jesus' teachings on this, but she knew from the garden that it was God's command to get in, get your hands dirty, get into the garden and cultivate it and care for it. The salt needs to be rubbed in for it to work. It can't just sit in a mill. So it's so easy for us to just look at the world, our communities, and condemn what's going on there, rather than us looking at the world and finding ways to cultivate it. I would suggest that we should think about adopting a posture of cultivating rather than us just retreating into the church, trying to keep the church good. We should try and make our communities good as well. It might be you're a teacher, a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, a politician, a social worker. All of you are cultivators working to keep the good in our society good. And this is God's original command for us, and it's something that Deborah did very, very well. Just one story I want to share with you. Uh, my hometown has a hero. I grew up in a town called Walsall, which is north of Birmingham, not in Poland. Um, and it's Sister Dora. So we can finally put up that image that has popped up every now and again. This is Sister Dora. Um, born Dorothy Willow Patterson in 1832. And um, Sister Dora, back then just known as Dora to her friends, um, wanted to give her life to something. She was the daughter of a, a reverend and knew what it was to be a Christian within society. So she decided to become a nun and dedicate her life to God's work. And the outworking of that was that she um, became a nurse in a hospital in Warsaw. Um, she, was, she spent 13 years as a nurse in Warsaw. Um, she was uh, known to say this, whenever you are serving patients, you are serving Christ. She was someone who knew what it was to cultivate the garden, keeping the good good by nursing those who were sick back to health. During the smallpox epidemic of 1875, Sister Dora risked her life by continuing to serve and look after those who were ill. In fact, the following year, it's estimated that she alone personally tended for 10,000 smallpox patients one-on-one. -on -one. She was absolutely dedicated to serving her community and loving the people that God put in front of her. She, in particular, built a friendship with the railway workers. It was an industrial town. And because of the, I guess, the health and safety of the time, often railway workers would have very bad injuries. And Sister Dora would look after them and nurse them back to health when she could. She was so well regarded within that community that these very poor railway workers put all their money in a pot and bought her a horse and cart so she could make the journey to the hospital more easily, particularly when the weather was bad. They wanted her 
to be around them. When she died, the whole town of Warsaw turned out for her funeral. She'd made such an impact on that community. A bronze statue was later commissioned to honor her life. The UK's first public statue of a woman outside of the royal family. Still to this day, a wing of the local hospital is named after her. Why do I tell you this story? I dream of the day that there are statues built in Ealing as a result of the things that people in this church give their lives to. I don't want to look at the history books and remember someone who lived full out for Jesus and they did that. I want stories of now. And that is my dream for this church. That it's not about commemorating what individuals have done. I'm not on physical statues. I'm on about the impact of the community. This borough should mourn if our church ever closed. There should be an outcry that we are worse off because Redeemer is no longer here. And it's because God calls us to be the gardeners of this borough, to cultivate, to care for, to make the good good, and to keep things good. Question. You're going to do some work now. You're going to turn to someone next to you and ask this. Within Ealing, what opportunities do you see to cultivate and be a blessing to your community. Two minutes, turn to someone and have a discussion. Okay, I'll draw you back to the front. Oh, that was useful just to provoke maybe some little ideas. Please continue those conversations in community groups. If we're ever going to make a difference in this borough, it's going to be as a result of us all taking action to uh, love our neighbor and to keep the good good in this borough. So, second part in Deborah's story. Not only is she cultivating the culture and the community that she lives amongst, she's also someone who takes action. Let's read the story. Judges 4, 5 to 10. She, Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, and from Kadesh Naphilite, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Nephetai to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at the heels and Deborah went up with him. So here we see Deborah taking action. She's taking initiative. She knows that the, the people of God are under this um, oppression and her result is to summon the army. We're going to deal with this. Not going to just look after us as a people and make sure that we get through this time. She's ch- taking a proactive action, which I love. I love this, that um, she's going back again to the original call on us as a people that God gave us in the garden. Let's return again to Genesis. Remember, she's living with this. This is new material to her. Genesis 1, 28. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's a creative calling on all of us as a result of God's command. Not only are we to cultivate and care for the existing garden, we're to go and make more garden. Outside the garden is the wilderness. Yeah, it's, uncul- it's just wild um, flowers and trees. It's not a pruned garden. Yet God is saying, I've made you something good. Keep it good, but go and make more good because we're in the image of God and that's his heart, so we get to be partner in his mission in that as well. So Deborah is now taking initiative. She's going to make more of the good that's out there. She is aware of the cruelty and the suffering being inflicted by Caesar and the Canaanite general. She sees the problem, and now in faith, she moves to do something about it. Deborah takes action. She calls for Barak, the leader of Israel's army, get some men together, get 10,000 men, and we're going to go and attack. This is still quite a brave thing. 900 steel chariots versus 10,000 men is still a very uneven battle. The chariots have it hands down. It's the Challenger 2 tanks versus the infantry with catapults. It's not going to end well if it was on purely human terms. Yet in faith, Deborah sees it and she calls it. We're going to have victory. It's someone who's taking initiative and seeing faith. Just like Deborah, we can become aware of the problems within our world, the challenges within our world. And it's very easy for us to become a a critic of those problems, to sit back and to critique it, but not actually do anything about it. Leadership is to rather be come up with a creative solution, to start something that solves the problem, to start a new business, a new program, or a new organization that deals with some of these problems within our community and within our city. It's certainly not raising an army like what Deborah did. She's living in a very different time. We will outwork this in a very different way. But it is starting things. Not only are we to keep the existing things good, we're to start a whole load of new things as a church and as a a, a community. A couple of stories just to ground this. Um, A friend of mine, um, his name's John Archer, nothing to do with the comedian who's coming in September to help us launch Alpha, another John Archer, and um, he was doing some contract work in my office. And I just, one day he walked in the office and I just felt God prod me, say, take him out to lunch. No more than that. So we went out for lunch, cheeky Nando's, of course, sat there, and over peri-peri chips and half a chicken, we, we chatted a little bit and got deeper beyond just our day-to-day work. And I felt, I felt like it was right to ask you, so what do you want to do with your life? And he, he took a few minutes and kind of process and said some things. He said, you know what? I want to give my life to solving one of the world's biggest problems. I thought, fantastic answer. Now we're having a really interesting conversation. What's the problem? I don't know. Haven't worked that bit out yet. Oh, how are you going to work it out? Not sure, really. Out of that conversation, there there was a joining of hearts, I'd say, between myself and John. And we found a way to um, support him financially for a year so that he could find out the answer to that question. 
And what he's done is he started with a, a, a research project to look at the 10 biggest problems that cause poverty in the world. Over a year, whittle those down to land on the single biggest problem that he could have impact on in the world. And he's landed on toilets. Now, it's not somewhere that I thought he would uh, end up, even as we were chatting. But from his research, he would say to have the biggest impact on global poverty, it's to provide toilets to communities that don't have toilets. Because you're providing dignity, you're protecting women, you're installing in all of the seeds that future economic growth can come from within a community. And he's now dedicating his life to solving that problem. And he's raising money and he's starting a charity, which I think is fantastic. And it's because he's a Christian and he knows this, that um, part of God's call is to start new things to bless the world. Um, another story, I might have shared this before, so forgive me if you've heard it. Um, Guinness, who likes um, a pint of Guinness? Let me, uh, let me say that your pint from now on can, can come with uh, a, li- a little bit more um, knowing that the story behind it is seeded in the gospel. Um, Arthur Guinness, um, he uh, is from the 1700s. He um, was alive at a time when the prevailing problem in the world, in his, the problem that he saw he wanted to solve, was the problem of drunkenness and gin. You think, why start an alcoholic drink to solve the problem of drunkenness? We've got to understand at that time, people would pour their sewage into the rivers. So you can't drink that water. They would drink alcohol instead of the water. And also, Parliament had come along and said, we're banning the import of any external spirits. So people would brew bathtub gin in their homes. Horrible, deadly stuff. And it would destroy society. Because that's what the people of the cities were living off. It was a horrible problem. Arthur found a way of brewing a lower alcohol alternative, as well as generating jobs and um, lifting a whole community within Dublin. Um, I'm sure I don't need to tell you the impact that Guinness has had on the world as a brand, but no, on the ground, they started countless hospitals and schools and community initiatives. Even in London, you can still to this day go around and see some of the social housing the Guinness family um, paid for and started in this city because of their belief in the one who is over all things, about living their life to him, not to themselves. And they, they started things and change their communities. As a church, again, I dream of all the things that we're going to start, all the schools that we're going to start, all the hospitals we're going to start, all of the initiatives that aren't even dreams yet that will come into a reality of what we're going to do over the next 10, 20, 50 years as a community. I want our own Guinness stories to share. We shouldn't have to go back to the 1700s to get good stories. So question, again, talk to your neighbor. What do you feel God may be stirring you to start Or where could you take action to make our world a better place? Okay, I'll draw you back to the front. Some interesting uh, ideas going on there. Let those develop. I find that the best ideas come when they collide with other people's ideas. So the more you talk about them, the more you share, the more refined those things come. You'll notice in Deborah's story that even Deborah, the phenomenal leader that she was, needed others to fulfill the the story. So even she needed Barak, the uh, leader of the army. So when you find your twos and your threes, as those ideas collide collide against each other, you'll find them sharpened and will start some really great things. Third part of Deborah's story. Deborah is not enough. 
Let's read this, Judges 4, 12 to 21. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from hezbollah Hagam to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from the mountain table with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harashabif Hagim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Habor, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she gave him uh, a rug, and she said, and he said to her, Please give me little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is there anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Hebor, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And if we need it, so he died. I've got to be honest, I'm a little nervous reading this story a week before I'm due to go to camping at New Day. I'm, tent, uh, I'm sharing a, a tent with Rob Butcher, who's not here this morning. So in case, Rob, if you're listening to the podcast, the practical application of this morning's teaching is not to get creative with tent pegs while I, I'm asleep. <laughs> actually, actually, I'm really encouraged by this ending to the story. Because even for all the leadership qualities and gifts that Deborah had, it wasn't enough. So even if our best, our very best, isn't enough, it gives courage to me because I know I'm not enough. If we're all not enough, who is enough? Well, I think you know who is enough. It's Jesus. In other words, Deborah, even though at this point she'd have not a full picture of who Jesus was or what he was going to come to do. She still believed that God would find a way. And that's where we come back to these two levels. So she was doing what she felt called to, but God was moving the pieces around the board. We skipped a tiny little bit of scripture. We've talked about um, Jael um, camping the tent near the, uh, the battle. There's no reason for that tent to have been pitched there. In fact, if I was looking for an appropriate camping place, it would not be near the scene of a battle that I have nothing to do with. Yet, Jael decided to camp near a battle, and the outwork of that was that the leader escaped and she killed him. It was God's providence to make sure that the end was the end. You see, even though I've spent a good deal of time this morning challenging you to think about how you're going to cultivate this borough, and all the things that you could create and start that would bring good to this borough. I've got some news for you. You're not going to change the world. 
It's not going to be anything that you do that changes the world. You get to be part of the, the, the mission of the one who will change the world, but it's not as a result of anything you do that will change the world. And I'm very glad to say that that's the case, because if it did rest on mine and your abilities, we would, we'd be so far short of the standard that we'd need to get in order um, to truly change the world. So let's look at a moment at the one who will change the world, the hero, Jesus Christ. This is from Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in him human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Jesus is the ultimate Deborah. All of these heroes we've looked at point to the one who's going to come back, claim it all as his, make all things new, and bring goodness fully back to the earth that we live in. He's going to deal with the problem. You know when um, my friend John's looking at the top 10 problems causing global poverty in the world, and he chooses one, we think that's, that's still a big, a big goal, that you're dedicating your life just to dealing maybe with part of the solution to that one goal. Yet we know one, Jesus, who's coming back, and he's going to make it all good. He's going to deal with all of that top 10 list, and the top 50, and the top 1,000. In fact, there's not a problem that he's not going to deal with in a flash and make all things new. And that's the hope that we live for. You see, he's coming again. Even though we live in the fruit of what he did on the cross right now, where we are renewed within us, we have a new heart, we still don't have new bodies. We still live in a world where there's problems next door to us. There's still lots of things which aren't right. And the gospel, yes, is Jesus died on the cross to save you. But the gospel is also he's coming back to make all things new. We've got this weird uh, view sometimes of heaven, that it's off in the distance on a fluffy cloud um, with a conditioned beard, wherever Sophie is. Um, you know, that, that, it's not true. You want to know where heaven is? It's here. You see, God made the garden and said it was good. And then we wrecked it. And he's coming back to make it all new again so it can live back in the garden again. It's not a garden. A city is a garden. It's a cultured place. This is where heaven will be. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So we don't have this weird concept of, this is yeah, what heaven, this is a, a far side of the galaxy um, cartoon, which I love. Um, just showing maybe what the world's view of heaven is like. I wish I'd brought a magazine. Now, now I've got to live on a cloud for eternity. Um, here's another quote by uh, a writer for the LA Times, Joel Stein. Um, heaven is totally overrated. It seems boring. Clouds, listening to people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century. But heaven has to step it up a bit. They're basically getting by, Christians, because they only have to do better than hell. I mean, that's a damning critique of what we've been teaching. So, Mr. Stein, 
I'd like to give a different picture to you of heaven. Jesus is not coming back to draw us out. He's coming back to renew our home. Do you like healing? Get used to it. You're going to live here a long time. This is where eternity will be. A new heaven and a new earth. We're not going to get drawn off to somewhere else. This is going to be where the kingdom of Jesus' reign will be. And I'm looking forward to it. And what do we, why do we cultivate and create? It's because we get to bring a little bit of that future kingdom now. It's only a little taste. But it's, it's, it's like um, Edward's word of this um, solar panel um, reflection of the glory. We, we, we're like little solar panels. You just get to reflect a little bit of God's glory onto the people and the communities that we live in. And it gives them a taste of what's to come. And it's a good thing that's coming. I look forward to the day that we all enjoy this restored creation. It's a hope that I live for. But don't miss out now on the opportunity to partner with God in cultivating and taking action today here in Ealing. We get to bring a little taste of that future kingdom now and make a real difference to the communities and our neighbours and this city and the nations of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we know that you are the true hero, that all of these stories in the Bible ultimately point to you coming back and claiming the whole earth as yours, that you are the true king, the one that we will, every knee will bow and every eye will see. We submit our lives to you. We look forward to the day where we get to enjoy a renewed earth, that we get to bask in the, the light of your glory forever and ever and ever. And I, I pray, help us bring about your kingdom now. That as we bring things under your rule and reign, we see a little taste of that kingdom to come. Encourage us in that. We need your spirit to empower us to do that really well. In your name, amen.